On this episode of Newt's World, I'm joined by members of my Inner Circle Club for a fascinating conversation about a wide range of issues and topics on their minds. We hold these regular video conference calls so that we can have an honest discussion about what is happening in America today. I find it extraordinarily helpful to me personally in helping think through the issues that are facing us. So I hope you'll find this episode of Newt's World informative. And if you'd like to become a member of my Inner Circle Club, please go to newtsinnercircle.com and sign up for a one- or two-year membership today. I was thinking a lot today about this particular conversation, and I realized that there are so many things going on. You have the whole question about Afghanistan, how the decisions were made, how the withdrawal occurred, the whole failure on the part of many people to honor the 13 Americans who died during the withdrawal, all sorts of questions on on just Afghanistan. Then you have the president's unusual behavior on 9-11 in going to all the right places, but apparently saying nothing, which is kind of odd when you look at some of the pictures of everybody else is giving a talk and he's just kind of standing there. Although apparently in New York, at one point he was yelling at people. And then you have the development of the legislative side where the Democrats have made a desperate effort to keep their members and the Republicans out of town. The Senate's finally coming back today, and the House will come back next week for only two weeks. And I think this is partly because they know that if the Republicans were here, the number of questions they'd be asking, for example, about Afghanistan would be kind of amazing. But in addition, they really don't want us to know what's in the legislation. There was this amazing interview with the Democrat chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, who said that, first of all, that it's going to be a $3 trillion tax increase. Now, that will be by far the largest tax increase in American history, much bigger than anything in the Civil War, much bigger than World War II. And he was very honest. It was kind of a weird interview with the New York Times where he said he was not going to release most of the details because the earlier people knew about it, the more opposition there'd be. So he would like to have the House vote before they know what's in it. And then he went on to say, and this is him, not me. He went on to say that he wants to try to escort the entire Congress and the American people down the aisle, apparently, without knowing what are the details of the $3 trillion of tax increases? And I think he's probably right at one level because what we have heard so far is a bill that can't possibly pass. Just the damage it does to family farms guarantees that a number of Democratic senators are going to have a very hard time voting for it. And there are all sorts of other things in there. When If you're trying to raise $3 trillion, you're going to hurt a lot of people and a lot of industries. And I think the more people learn about the bill, the weaker it's going to get. The Democrats have this logjam where they haven't passed the infrastructure bill, and the left won't let them pass it until they pass the big government socialist bill that Bernie Sanders wrote, 
for 3.5 trillion, but that's the bill that has $3 trillion of tax increases. So it may never pass. And if it doesn't pass, does that then mean that the left blocks the infrastructure bill? Then they've got the continuing resolution because at the end of September, the fiscal year runs out and you have to pass a continuing resolution just to keep the government open. And the question is whether they can get the votes to actually continue the government And then on top of that, the debt ceiling has expired, and they have to pass a new debt ceiling because otherwise the U.S. government can't borrow any money. And everybody knows that this would be the equivalent of a massive heart attack. The idea that the United States government could not meet its debts would be stunning. And so the pressure is enormous. And the Republicans have said flatly, they're not going to help as long as the $3.5 trillion big government socialist bill is still in play because they don't see any reason why they should raise a debt ceiling to create the space for Bernie Sanders to have a bill, which Bernie, by the way, regards as moderate. He was on TV Sunday saying, you know, the original bill was $6 trillion and we've already compromised down to $3.5 trillion. So I don't understand why Joe Manchin wants to go down to $1.5 trillion because we've already given up all that extra money that we wanted to spend, which gives you some sense of where they would go if they could get away with it. Now, I have written a paper arguing that this is the greatest opportunity the Republicans have had in many years, maybe in a lifetime, to define the new Democratic Party as the big government socialist party, which is what I think it is. In my paper, I mention both the House page number in the congressional record and the Senate page number, so you can go and see for yourself. Every single Democrat senator voted yes on a $3.5 trillion big government socialist bill written by Bernie Sanders, and every Democrat in the House voted yes on a $3.5 trillion big government socialist bill. Now, they all want to go back home and say they're moderates. But I deliberately went and found the congressional record because I want to be able to say, look, you know, it's time that they told the truth. Virtually every Democrat who's in office today is a big government socialist. The old moderate Democratic Party is gone. It may get reconstituted, and you may start seeing genuine moderates run against the tax increases and against the big spending bills, particularly because the inflation rate is going up. And most Americans believe that passing a big spending bill on top of an inflationary environment makes no sense at all. So there's pretty massive opposition to passing the bill already before they even know all the details. And that opposition is going to grow as people learn just how bad it is. So I think it's an amazing period. I'm trying to get all of my friends to describe it honestly as big government socialism. I think if the Republicans could be disciplined and could focus on describing both the bill and the people who voted for the bill as big government socialists, we have a poll that we did in our American Majority Project that shows that by 59 to 16, people favor free market capitalism over big government socialism. Think about that, 59 to 16. So we have an opportunity here to, I think, pin the left-wing Democrats as who they really are. And we have proof in the congressional record that every single House and Senate member was a left-wing Democrat when it mattered, 
when it was their votes. So it's a very fascinating, very complicated period. And I look forward to your questions. Our first question is from Pam from Iowa. Pam wants to know, after the Afghanistan disaster, what should the U.S. do now about the danger created in Afghanistan and the Middle East? Well, I think we have to recognize something which even the Bush administration refused to recognize. I was involved in arguments in 2002, and I kept trying to say to them, these people are our enemies. They're not confused. And I thought President Bush's statements at 9-11 were, frankly, really revealing about his willingness to draw a comparison between Americans who have extreme views and the Taliban. The fact is our enemies don't just have extreme views. They killed 3,000 Americans. They had an organized plot. It was apparently helped by some elements of the Saudi Arabian government. It was planned in Afghanistan. And we still have people, including, of course, the entire Biden administration, who refuse to admit that we are in you know, they talk about the long war. Well, the long war may be 200 years. Trotsky once said, you may not care about war, but war cares about you. And I think that that's what we're up against. And so I think we need to rethink our entire strategy and recognize that it's a global war. It involves people in Nigeria, for example, with Boko Haram. It involves people in Somalia with Al-Shabaab. It involves people in Yemen, people in Saudi Arabia, but it also involves people, remember the two massacres in Paris in the last few years, one at a restaurant and one at a magazine. In the last year in France, we've had a school teacher beheaded for having said things that his students decided were anti-Muslim, and so they wanted to set us an example. We had a priest who I think was in his 80s who was killed by Muslims in France. And so We have to recognize this is a worldwide phenomenon and that there is a faction of Islamists who want to, in fact, destroy the West and establish a worldwide caliphate, and they are prepared to kill to do it. And I think that to have any attitude other than we're going to have to find a way to sustain very long-term conflict on a global basis against a pretty sophisticated enemy. Remember, after 20 years of war, a 7th century tribal faction defeated the most powerful nation in the 21st century. We lost. And you can tell we lost because the Taliban's in charge of Kabul and we're not. So I think we need a serious, uh, honest conversation as a country. And we need to recognize that on the one hand, we have to deal with China and Russia. And on the other hand, we have to deal with what will be, I think, a very aggressive resurgence of Islamist fanaticism because from their perspective, they're winning. This is a great victory for them. Biden gave them $85 billion in weapons, made the Taliban the largest weapons merchants in the world. And they're going to send those weapons all around the world, to the Philippines, to Indonesia, to Pakistan, to Nigeria. And I think we didn't see the end of anything this summer. We saw the beginning of a new phase, and it'd be, I think, a very painful and very dangerous phase. Our next question comes from Tom. Tom says he continues to be amazed by Pelosi's dictatorial command of the House. 
As a former distinguished speaker of the House, can you shed some light as to the specific intimidation tactics Nancy Pelosi is using to keep the so-called moderate Dems in line? Well, let me say I share his amazement. I didn't think it was possible to pass insane left-wing legislation with a four or five of margin. And so as a technical feat, you have to have some grudging respect for Pelosi, who is probably the toughest dictator ever to run the House. And we've had very tough speakers before. But I think part of it is people are just plain afraid of her. They know that she's utterly, totally ruthless. They know that she can mobilize all of the left. You know, years ago, I was helping Jack Kemp, and we were proposing that public housing could be earned by the residents through sweat equity, that if they took care of the house and they took care of the neighborhood and they went out and worked that over a five or 10 or 15 year period, they could actually earn a property interest in their public housing. And it was an interesting idea. We had a very funny moment where Barney Frank got up and he said, you realize with some of the public housing in New York City, that if you earned the right to your apartment, it could be worth a million dollars and you wouldn't be poor anymore. And he seemed to think that was a terrible idea that we'd actually come up with an idea that allowed people to earn the ability to rise from poverty. But I talked to a leading Democrat who said, you know, I think Kemp has a big idea and I think it's probably worth trying. And I said, well, you know, if you would vote for it, you would really help change the whole approach. And he said, look, I currently have no opponent. So I'm planning to go to my place in the Bahamas and have a really nice summer. Now, if I vote for Jack's idea, the public housing union will guarantee that I have an opponent. And I'll win, but I'll have to raise about a half million dollars and I won't be able to go to the Bahamas. So I have to ask myself, is it worth three months of my life and a half million dollars? And while I think it's a good idea, I don't think it's that good an idea. And it kind of gave me a sense of the internal mechanics of the Democratic Party, that between the unions, the radical left, the news media, and the ability of people like Pelosi to raise enormous amounts of money out of people like George Soros, they have a capacity to punish you that nobody on the Republican side could come anywhere close to matching. And they have a natural herd instinct. I mean, people need to remember that the Democratic Party's natural behavior is much more like a herd that work together. And the Republicans tend to really be individualistic. So herds have all sorts of internal pressures to stick together. And I think that combined with sheer fear and with Nancy Pelosi's personal ruthlessness is what has kept them in line. But it is an absolutely amazing achievement. Mr. Speaker, from what I understand, the Democrat Party is scared to death that President Biden will have to leave office. That leaves Carmela, as I call her, will have to move in to fill his place, and thus the vice president will no longer be the deciding vote in the Senate. So my question is, what is your take on the problem the Senate Democrats face? Should Biden resign? Well, no, that actually wouldn't work that way because you would have the new president just as happened with Nixon and Ford. When Nixon resigned and Ford became the new president, 
Ford then recommended Nelson Rockefeller and the House approved it. So Rockefeller became vice president. So I think there might be a 30-day break, but they would nominate somebody who the House would agree to approve. And that person would then become the vice president under the 25th Amendment. So you would be right back where we are now. I think it's very hard to imagine that Biden is going to be pushed out of office. I think, you know, the entire team around him has a huge vested interest, starting with Ron Klain, the chief of staff. They have a huge vested interest in Biden, and they're not going to give that up easily or walk off lightly. What do you think the fallout's going to be from the vaccine mandate from the president? What will be the political fallout from that? How will that shake out? Well, I think, first of all, what you're likely to see happen in the next few days is the development of class lawsuits in which every business in the country joins a class, which provides them with legal protection against the federal government because they'll be in the middle of a lawsuit. I'm talking now with several attorneys who are developing class action lawsuits that'll be open to every single business owner in the country. And I think people are just furious because one, it's unconstitutional. Two, it is a level of power that resembles an absolute kingship rather than the president of the United States. Three, if you own a company or you're managing a company, you don't want to get in a fight with your own employees. Frankly, under the HIPAA rules, I don't see how they can enforce this because people have the right to come in and say, you know, I'm not allowed to take the shots because of my health situation. And you're not allowed to ask them what their health situation is. It's just utterly stupid on Biden's part, but typical of Biden's lack of any kind of depth or any kind of serious thought. And then finally, I think that what we're going to discover is that it's all totally corrupt. As the Daily Mail put it in their headline, Biden declares war on 80 million Americans. And my first thought was he hasn't got the guts to fight the Taliban, but he doesn't mind fighting Americans. He's not going to apply any of these rules to illegal immigrants. And apparently now he's already cut a deal with the Postal Union. So the Postal Union is not going to have to have the vaccination. So your local postman or postwoman who happens to come by your house every single day They may be carriers of COVID because, after all, Biden didn't want to take on the union. Well, what does that tell you? I think this is a bigger mistake for him politically than Afghanistan was. Because Afghanistan, while it's a tragedy and it's horrible and it breaks every American tradition of not leaving people behind, and it was done with such a high level of stupidity that the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs ought to be fired. But having said that, This is a direct assault on every person. And we now have hospitals that are saying they can't deliver babies because their nurses are all quitting. And I think the degree to which the Biden people are totally unscientific, totally political, and totally hypocritical is just astonishing. And I think this is going to chew him up for months to come because I think people just think he is grossly overreached. The President of the United States doesn't have the authority to dictate to you without a congressional law, without any hearings, without any scientific background. And what he's doing, I think, is extraordinarily dangerous. If he can do this, what else can he do? I mean, if he gets up and feels grumpy on Monday, what's he going to come down and dictate to the American people next? Good afternoon, Newt. What is the likelihood 
senior centrist Democrats, and I'm actually thinking about those that don't hold political office, that they panic and look to take action prior to the 2022 election. What is the probability and possibility of this happening? And what might those actions be? I cannot believe the Democrat leaders believe the election will go well for them. What about self-survival? They are desperately trying to pass what I've called the Corrupt Politicians Act, because I think they down deep know if they can't rig the elections, they're going to get wiped out. I mean, they're drifting now towards a 40 or 50 seat loss in the House and almost certainly losing the Senate. And this is part of why I think big government socialism is such an important concept. The more the American public realizes that the old Democratic Party is gone and has been replaced by a big government socialist party, the more the country is likely to repudiate them, both in the House and the Senate. And I think their only answer is to be able to steal the election. And that's why they're so desperately trying to write some kind of election law change. I think 20-some states now have already had election reforms, all of them in the direction of requiring that you be able to identify yourself, which, by the way, about 87% of the American people, including a vast majority of African-Americans and Latinos, believe that you should have to identify yourself. They believe everybody should be allowed to vote once, but that you actually ought to know who the person is and that you shouldn't have people who randomly show up and maybe vote five or ten times. Why didn't we bomb the $4 billion worth of planes, Humvees, and armaments? In terms of the planes, we could also just have flown them out. I mean, they're airplanes. You know, you send in a pilot and you take them home. But normally, historically, what we would have done, and this is a real condemnation of the Pentagon, historically, we would have gone in there and we would have loaded up all that equipment and taken it home. If you go back and look at the end of the first Gulf War, there's a book by the general who was in charge called Moving Mountains, because after the war was over, we had put so much equipment into the desert in 1991 that he had to bring it all back home. And they kept track of all, they knew how many tanks they had. They knew how many Humvees they had. They knew how many artillery pieces they had. The Pentagon has grown so sloppy now, and the senior command is so political and I think so lacking in serious warfighting attitudes. I find it embarrassing. I find it very worrying when you start thinking about China or Russia or North Korea or Iran, because I just think we have a class now of political generals who are very dangerous for us. Since critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and other leftist programs are pushing obviously racist policies on Americans, why aren't Americans fighting back using the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and other civil rights legislation? I think that's a really good question, and I suspect that there might be grounds for a lawsuit based on that for people, for example, in companies where they're being coerced into taking these courses. I also think that you're seeing a huge turnaround in terms of school boards and school board elections and a level of activism at the local level we haven't seen for many years. And a good friend of mine, Adam Waldeck, is running a project called 1776 Action, which takes on the 1619 and the critical race theory head-on. He recently had a 1,000 people at an event in Loudoun County, 
Virginia and is doing a great job. You can go to 1776 Action on the internet and, and you'll see the kind of things they're doing. But I think actually what the left has done by being so overtly racist is they have aroused a countervailing attitude, not just among whites, but a lot of Latinos and Asian Americans and African Americans who are disgusted at this idea that we should be divided up into tribes by some liberal elite academic who has no idea what they're talking about. Okay, we have another write-in question from Mary from Georgia. What should Republicans in Congress do about all of the online censorship? Oh, I think that we should be advocating a bill that makes it impossible for the oligarchs to censor people. I think that it's just totally wrong. I mean, imagine that AT&T or Verizon could listen into your phone call and decide to cut you off. And I think that they're so clearly left-wing, they're so clearly biased, that it's totally wrong and it's a major problem for the country. Our next question comes from Elliot from Massachusetts. I find it difficult to discuss politics with my Democrat friends. Do you have any tips on reasoning with them to win the argument? First of all, you have to check out, are you dealing with a person who's nuts? In which case, I recommend you not worry about it. If they're not nuts, I think the trick is to ask them constantly questions. Don't argue with them, but ask them questions about things they will have seen with their own eyes. Do they think that it's okay that you have an open border to the South with people coming in with COVID and with criminal records? Do they think it's okay that we left $85 billion behind in Afghanistan? And, you know, sometimes you have to go through five or six or seven examples before they start to break down because the first couple answers are going to be, well, if Biden did it, I'm for it. At least he's not Trump. Try to get them engaged and figure out what their reality is and what they're willing to concede as reality rather than arguing ideology or theory. Elizabeth from Florida writes in, what is your favorite memory from serving as Speaker of the House? Boy, that's a good question. I think it may have been the morning I was sworn in. I went over very early in the morning and went out on the Speaker's balcony. This is about 7 a.m looking down at the mall, down to Washington's Memorial and then Lincoln. And I was thinking, here I am, I'm an army brat, born in Pennsylvania, grew up all over the world with no particular money and a middle-class family. And the people of my district have given me the opportunity to represent them. And now the members of my conference have asked me to be the speaker And that it's remarkable in America. And I thought of it much like the Army brat that I am. And I thought, you know, this is a change of command ceremony. And I will be taking over. And someday in the future, I will be giving up the gavel in another change of command ceremony, just like you do in the military, where you come in, you do your job, and you leave. And I had this deep sense of patriotic duty and that God had been very, very good to me in allowing me to stand up for what I believed in and to work with so many good people to create the first majority in 40 years, and that I hoped that I would be able to keep their faith and to actually get things done 
that would be worthy of the effort it had taken for us to take control. So that's probably the most profound memory I have of the four years. I just want to ask all of you to take seriously this idea of big government socialism and try to talk to your friends about it, talk radio, letters to the editor, people you know on Facebook or whatever. I think if we could clearly get across that this is a big government socialist bill and that the Democrats who voted for it, which is all of them, are big government socialists, I think we could have a profound effect on the future of America. And I don't know of any other single thing that would be as effective. So I always find these inner circle lives helpful and they remind me of what people are concerned about. And I do urge you to reach out and tell your friends about it and encourage them to join the inner circle. And at the same time, I look forward to our future get together. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you for listening. And thank you to members of my inner circle club. And if you'd like to become a member, please go to newtsinnercircle.com and sign up for a one or two year membership today. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Is ivermectin a horse dewormer or a Nobel Prize winning medicine? It's both. So yes, for all of you people out there who've heard that uh, it's a horse dewormer, yes, ivermectin is actually a horse dewormer. It is also a uh, treatment for infection for cattle and swine as well. So it's also that as well. um, Gosh, I guess we can add uh, sheep and uh, ostriches to that as well. So that's what ivermectin can be used for. Absolutely correct. It is used as an animal treatment. It's also used as a human medicine. Ivermectin has been used over 4 billion times. That's how many doses have been distributed over many, many decades. And it's used for a wide variety of treatments. In fact, it is so successful at what it does that it won the Nobel Prize in 2015. And here even is Merck congratulating the awardees of the 2015 Nobel Prize in Physiology. That was Dr. William C. Campbell and Dr. Omura from Japan. And they shared the Nobel Prize because it's an amazing compound. So it's actually both now. Let's turn now to this other idea, though, that, hey, you know what? It's actually a little confusing. There's nuance because lots of medicines are used in both humans and animals. We can see that aspirin is used in dogs and cats and many other animals. Erythromycin, clindamycin. If you ever uh, get a tooth infection, you're probably going to get clindamycin. So it's not a sufficient argument for somebody to say. It's not even logical. It's not even a valid argument for somebody to say, oh, it's a horse dewormer. So therefore, dot, dot, dot. Therefore, nothing. Um, We use lots of medicines in both animals and humans. So that's the state of uh, what we know about ivermectin in terms of its use in animals and humans. What about, is it safe? Is it safe? That's a really important question. Is ivermectin safe? Answer? Yes, it absolutely is. Let me go into that very quickly. There was this beautiful research paper, a review paper by Jacques Decote, a world prominent toxicologist. He reviewed 500 sources and papers and came to this conclusion about ivermectin down in pink down at the bottom. So that 
ivermectin human toxicity cannot be claimed to be a serious source of concern. It's an extremely safe, extremely well-tolerated drug. In this paper, looked at all sorts of things like drug-drug interactions. Have there been any serious adverse events? In fact, all the side effects noted to date were mild or moderate, but not serious. That's going to be important. We'll get to that why in just a second. So then we look across the state of the world. Is it effective, though? Is ivermectin effective? And there's lots of data to say, yeah, there's a signal there. Um, and get my drawing tool out here really quickly. So we see here, this is by Thomas J. Barodi is the uh, final, the last author on this paper. That's the signature spot to be on in a paper. Also, we got Sabine Hazan in here. A lot of very, very famous people here in the world of um, gut biome and gut health. Thomas Barodi is this gentleman down here. He is the uh, inventor of the triple combo therapy to treat peptic ulcers, which used to be you would get a proton blocker. Now you get an antibiotic because he was one of the people who helped uh, resolve how to treat that very, very famous guy. Writing here, they say ivermectin is safe. It's an expensive and an effective way early COVID-19 treatment. This is what they're saying in this paper, validated in 20 plus randomized controlled trials. That's what RCT is up here. They say they trialed a novel combination therapy comprising of ivermectin, doxycycline, zinc, and vitamin C and D, and it was highly effective. All subjects resolved symptoms in 11 days on average. Oxygen saturation improved in 24 hours. Hospitalizations and deaths were significantly fewer than in background match controls. So, yeah, there's a signal there that says it's safe and effective. That's what the data is saying. So this person here, Dr. Tro, uh, just want to point something out. He wrote here, the problem with ivermectin, he writes here in a tweet, is that only about 16 trials were actually registered and resulted of which about six were inconclusive or negative. Uh, the other way to look at that is 10 were not inconclusive or negative. They were positive. That's a lot of data. And why is that important? Because this person, uh, Kelly Victory, Dr. Kelly Victory, wrote, we have never relied on trials at a time of crisis. Once a drug is known to be safe, clearly the case with IVM, which is FDA approved for decades, then why demand studies to prove efficacy before trying it? Those using it have, been, have seen remarkable results. Time to prove is later. And that's a very interesting and logical point. So I put that into a matrix, which looks like this. This is your ivermectin decision matrix. There's only two axes on this. You either give it to a patient with COVID-19 or you don't. You don't give it to them. Hey, and either it works and is safe or it doesn't work, but it's still safe. Let's imagine we were in this top box. We gave it and it worked and it was safe. There we see a clear benefit. What if we gave it to the patient, but it didn't work? Well, it was still safe. So that's a neutral outcome. No harm resulted. What if we didn't give it to the patient though? And it worked and was safe. Well, now it's harm. That's an actual harm box right there. And what if it didn't work, but it was safe, but we didn't give it to the patient? Well, NA, not, not applicable. Nothing happened there. So that's the entire matrix. So if you think it through, it's very clear that the only logical choice based on the safety alone, even leaving aside efficacy, is you would give it because it's very, very safe, exceedingly well-tolerated drug. And so this is the only axis that makes sense logically you would give it in a clinical setting. That's what the logic says. Now let's contrast that though with remdesivir. Remdesivir, you've heard about, it's antiviral, it's FDA approved, it's used almost everywhere in the United States. If somebody goes to uh, an ICU or to the hospital, 
with an advanced case of COVID, odds are pretty strong that they're going to get remdesivir, uh, the Gilead substance. Now, way back in April of 2020, which is a forever ago amount of time, um, they noted here that remdesivir is a broad spectrum antiviral originally developed to treat Ebola, but didn't work. Uh, it actually didn't work for Ebola. Notice down here they say about 25% of patients receiving remdesivir have severe side effects. Not mild, not moderate, severe, including multiple organ dysfunction syndrome, which is very fatal quite often. Septic shock, very fatal quite often. Acute kidney injury and low blood pressure and another 23% demonstrated evidence of liver damage on lab tests. Here's how many people have demonstrated any of those side effects on ivermectin so far. So the safety profiles aren't even remotely comparable. As well, it was all the way back in November of 2020 that the WHO recommended against the use of remdesivir in COVID-19 patients because the data did not support it. And we're getting more evidence that remdesivir, and in this case, hydroxychloroquine, not effective against COVID-19. This is published in July. So you would think with that overwhelming evidence, when you go to the NIH treatment guidelines, because that's what people say when they say about it, I've reacted like, well, it's not FDA approved, and the NIH hasn't approved it. So what does the FDA and NIH approve? Well, in this case, this was pulled today, which is September 16th. I pulled this. This was last updated on July 8th. This is antiviral drugs that are approved or under evaluation for the treatment of COVID-19. Remdesivir is the only FDA-approved drug for the treatment of COVID-19 in the antiviral class right now. It's the only one, and it's still approved, even though long time ago, the WHO and others determined that it didn't work, and it's got a really lousy safety profile. And then when you go to the NIH treatment guidelines, which hospitals rely on, doctors rely on, they say, listen, I really have to follow the NIH treatment guidelines. We find here, and this is last updated August 25th, 2021. This is well after the remdesivir data came in strong. This says, that doesn't work. And it's got a lot of really bad side effects. We find that if you are hospitalized and you require supplemental oxygen and you go to the hospital, you're going to get remdesivir. That's what they've put right up here. It's remdesivir is still the approved treatment, even though... We have lots of data that says doesn't work and it's harmful. And we contrast that with ivermectin where we run through a giant tox screen of over 500 papers and we can't find anything but mild or moderate. No kidney damage, no liver damage, no multi-organ syndrome, um, failure syndrome, any of that stuff. So when we put all of that together, what do you get? Here's the summary of ivermectin. It's both a human and a veterinary medicine. It's extremely safe. It's very well tolerated, at least clinically. Side effects are mild, at most moderate. It's, most of those are in people who have active worm infestations. It's vastly safer than remdesivir, which the FDA very rapidly approved and is left on the approved list, uh, despite uh, lots of data coming in saying not effective and causes harm. And there's enough of a signal of effectiveness that the burden of proof is more rightly upon those who would say to limit its use. We can't use it clinically. They have to prove and say why. Because when you have a drug that's very, very safe, the burden of saying why you shouldn't use it now is suddenly on you rather than the other way around. And finally, the logic says its use is actually the rational and compassionate decision According to this matrix right here, if anybody can argue against this decision matrix, I'd be very interested to hear that. I scour the data all the time. And if you want to follow this story and more like it, come to that website you see down over there, 
peakprosperity.com. That's where I hang out and talk about things like this with our incredible and expanding tribe of people who are interested in context, data, the truth, and having an open, free, and fair conversations. Thank you for listening. 